Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. We interrupt this broadcast before it was history. It was news. It appears as though something has happened in the motorcade. I said, those are shots. Man on the moon. We copy it down, Eagle. I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. I'm Bill Curtis. It's been said that breaking news becomes the first draft of history. What's overlooked is how deeply we relied on broadcast journalists who met the adrenalized demands of those moments, often with courage and daring. Broadcast journalism has a simple, sober purpose, to keep the public informed through the best and worst of times. But the consequence of that labor is profound. As legendary newsman Walter Cronkite wrote, the free press is the central nervous system of a democratic society. No true democracy can exist without it. History has borne out that wisdom. But before it was history, it was news. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Britain's Princess Diana has been in an automobile accident. The first call was pretty tentative, just that there had been an accident. What is reliable? What is, where did we get this information? So an unconfirmed uh, source from the Press Association is that Diana, Princess of Wales, has died. Nobody in Paris wanted to be the person taking responsibility for announcing what was obviously going to be a momentous global news story. Crash happened in a tunnel near the Seine River at about half past midnight local time. This 36-year-old beloved princess is dead, and it's hard to get your head around. French police say the princess's car was being chased by several press photographers at the time of the crash. It's never been a worse feeling than it was that night. I'm Brian Williams. She was the most photographed woman in the world, easily the most glamorous, an actual princess in our time. We watched as young, shy Diana Spencer got married to the young, shy future King of England. We did not know then what we know now about what it was like behind the scenes. 
the hazing of Diana by the royal family, the subsequent eating disorder, the adultery, and finally the nasty divorce. And that we did get to see. Later, we watched as she embarked on her private life. But unlike other single mothers of two young boys, one distinct sound accompanied Diana wherever she went, and it let you know she was nearby. So she wasn't one of those happily ever after princesses, but once she was free of the bonds of matrimony, she tried to be happy in her way. While she'd been linked to an occasional love interest and while millions around the globe simply loved the woman they had never met, the summer of 1997 brought a change. She had a new love in her life, finally something for the paparazzi to pursue and devour. His name was Dodi Al-Fayed. He seemed to be always described as an Egyptian jet-setter. His father owned the world-famous Harrods department store in London. And so every step of the way with Doty, cameras and reporters were there. On the last day of August 1997, the so-called People's Princess gave the people something to talk about and something to look at. Diana and Doty enjoyed a day of rarefied pleasures sunning in Sardinia, flying to Paris, dining that evening at the Ritz Hotel, which was surrounded by dozens of photographers, all of them wanting to get the shot. CNN's Paris bureau correspondent was Jim Bitterman. She had been out of the headlines for a while. She had abandoned the, the monarchy. She was off dating Dodi Fayed, and she was just not in the news that much. And in fact, no one, I don't think, well, I guess the paparazzi did, but not many people knew that she was in France. The royal spokesperson for Buckingham Palace was Dickie Arbiter. It was August. She'd been on holiday with William and Harry, taking them to the south of France. Now they were up at uh, Balmoral with their dad, their grandparents. She had nothing to do. She was at a loose end. She was lonely. Uh, she was offered a holiday on the yacht in the Mediterranean. And what 30-something-year-old girl is not going to turn that down? She had nothing else to do. So it was supposed to fly straight back from the south of France to London. But somewhere up at 36,000 feet, Dodie must have phoned his dad and said, can we go to Paris? And father said, yeah, sure. When Diana and Dodie arrived at the Ritz Hotel, there was no security. There was nothing ready for them. There was no staff. There was no cars. There was nothing. They were going to dinner and then on to Dodie's apartment uh, later on in the evening. You know, there was a very discreet kind of appearance here. And then they were going to fly on to London the next day. So they were only here a few hours or was meant to be here a few hours, yet... The paparazzi knew about it, but, you know, most of us in the mainstream media, we didn't pay much attention to it because it was more like gossip news. It was a, what the French call people news. It was it was something that the mainstream media are, are, don't really cover on a regular basis. After dinner, Fayed wished to transport Diana back to his apartment. The story was that's where he intended to present her with an engagement ring. But getting across town in Paris that night was another matter. The paparazzi are mostly on motorbikes, and to throw them off, Dodie arranged for decoy cars in the front of the Ritz while the couple escaped through the back entrance. Inside the massive Mercedes sedan with them was the driver and a single bodyguard. But the photogs hadn't been fooled. They spotted the car at a stoplight and gave chase. 
With motorbikes buzzing in and around the path of the car, the big Mercedes headed to a riverfront expressway along the bank of the River Seine. They entered a tunnel at high speed. The driver lost control and rammed into a concrete support pillar head on. I first learned of the accident on the Saturday night. It was Saturday night in the UK. It was half past 11, Saturday the 30th in the UK. But it was Sunday morning, half past 12 in France on the 31st. And I had a call from um, CNN in Atlanta. A reporter said, can you tell me about the crash in Paris? And I said, what crash in Paris? And while he was talking, I went into the other room and switched on the TV and switched into CNN and saw everything unfolding. This is CNN Breaking News. Diana, Princess of Wales, has been seriously injured. Dodi Al-Fayed has been killed. I'm Jean Meserve in Washington. In Paris, France, tonight, a tragedy. Britain's Princess Diana has been in an automobile accident. She has been injured. And I thought, my goodness, what's going on here? I was actually visiting a friend in the hospital. I got a page on my pager to report to the office. Technology being quite different back then. I called in, they told me only that Princess Diana had been in a terrible car wreck in Paris. That's all we knew. I drove fast to the studio, took a seat, went on the air. The rest of it unfolded around us in real time. I was the senior editorial person in the newsroom at CNN. David Bernkoff was a CNN vice president. And there was a senior international assignment editor also working that shift. And the first report came in that Princess Di had been hurt and probably hurt badly in a car accident in Paris. So that obviously becomes your lead story because Princess Diana was the biggest celebrity in the world at that point. She was the princess of all royals in terms of coverage. Everybody was interested in her. So we had a Paris bureau. Obviously, they're activated. We were happily and deeply asleep when about 12.40 in the evening, the phone rang, and it was the Atlanta news desk. And they said, you know, uh, we have a report that Dodi Fayed has been in an accident in Paris. And I kind of half awake, I said, uh, all right, okay, well, when you get it confirmed, call me back. And then about 30 seconds later, the head of CNN News, Chris Kramer, president, was on the phone saying, Jim, you don't get this. Dodie Fayed's been dating Princess Diana. We think she's in the car and we think she's hurt. And without any more encouragement than that, I was immediately jumping into my clothes, hitting the road because we we're about an hour or so from Paris and heading for the Alma Tunnel, where the accident took place. Diana, Princess of Wales, has been seriously injured in a car accident. Her companion, the Harrods heir, Dodi Al-Fayed, has been killed. After a fairly short period of time, I start to get a instinctive, worried feeling. And I remember walking over at some point, maybe an hour later, maybe two hours later, walking over to the International Assignment Desk and saying, I think we need to start moving other people to Paris because it is becoming obvious to me 
that she is in a very serious condition and might, in fact, be dead. We are getting one report from a news agency uh, that the princess is suffering from concussion. The assignment editor looked at me and goes, oh my gosh, what are you talking about? There's no evidence of that. They say she's hurt. Why would you say that? I said, because if she was okay, they would be issuing some statement saying she's going to be okay. The absence of that for someone this important to the royal family tells me that this is worse than we know. And this uh, assignment editor would not make the call to start moving other people and notifying other higher-ups. Eventually, of course, notified his supervisors, but I wanted him to start moving a crew and a reporter from Brussels, which is not that far, and you could get and we had such a person there. And most importantly, I wanted him to wake up the entire London Bureau and just say, let's be prepared for a bad eventuality. And it became a kind of heated argument between us over whether we needed to do this yet. And it was his firm belief that there was no reason to go to Code Red at that point. And at some point when the night grew longer and there was no statement coming from Buckingham Palace that she was okay and no statement from the hospital that she was okay. Then it started to dawn on this individual that I might have been right. Patricia Kelly was CNN's bureau chief in Brussels. Atlanta um, called at around three o'clock in the morning. And in fact, I had some visitors that weekend and we'd been out for dinner and we were still up late talking. So I hadn't even gone to bed. And about three o'clock in the morning, the phone rang and I knew straight away it was CNN. They always called, the desk always called uh, at very unsocial hours. And uh, they said that uh, Princess Diana had been injured and they wanted me to go to London to join the coverage. So packed a bag, didn't know how long I was going for and drove to the airport. Kevin Connolly was Paris correspondent for the BBC. When the first call came, And the first call, as first calls often are in the news business, was pretty tentative. It was from the news desk in London. It was just that there had been an accident. It was thought that Diana, Princess of Wales, had been involved. And would I think about heading towards the office? Because in those days, of course, our facilities for broadcasting from home were pretty limited. News was something you did from purpose-built offices filled with hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of broadcasting equipment. So that was the first move. And at that stage, it was perfectly possible that, frankly, there'd be nothing to it. I mean, Diana was such an extraordinarily transfixing figure for the news industry that almost any information about her was regarded as news by somebody. Now, most of it by 1997 was news for red top tabloids in the UK, supermarket tabloids, in the United States. So that was not the kind of news that the BBC concerned itself with in those days. And as I say, that first call was pretty tentative, just that there had been an accident. I was asleep in my flat in London, and at about 1 a.m. London time, the New York Foreign Desk at CBS News called and said to me, there's been an accident with Diana and Dodie Fayed. Marcy McGinnis was London bureau chief for CBS News. 
her boyfriend. Uh, Dodie is dead. I think we knew it right away. And I remember like jumping out of my bed, sort of, oh my God, oh my God, this is huge. This is huge. I really got to figure out what I'm going to do. So we had in London what's called a phone tree. So it's one of those things where, you know, you call certain people and then they call other people. So we started immediately, I started the phone tree, which was calling people to say this had happened and we got to get in. So everyone started to get to the bureau. I put some people in charge of an obit because we have to have an obit of Princess Diana in case she dies. Some of the technical people were in charge of finding out if we could get satellite trucks in front of Buckingham Palace on Sunday morning. I mean, that's one of the great things about working at a place like CBS News, where everybody is really, really good at their job. It wasn't unusual that we could react very, very quickly to breaking news like this. But for reporters at the scene of the accident, just gathering that news posed a challenge. When I got to the tunnel, we could see the wreckage in the tunnel. It was about 100 yards away. The police put up a line and they wouldn't let us go any closer than that. But we were about 100 yards away from the wreckage. And you could see the emergency technicians working on the uh, people inside the car. The police, of course, at that stage had sealed off with blue tape. I think images of the crashed vehicle had been seen by this point. It was clear that if Diana was not dead, then she was at the very, very minimum, very, very gravely injured. A doctor has treated Diana at the scene in the tunnel, a doctor who happened to be passing by. She has been carefully taken to an ambulance. The ambulance in Paris is a very, very capable vehicle. It's not just something that drives you to hospital. It's effectively a portable intensive care unit. So she is being worked on intensively. One of the major American networks reported that Diana was fine. She had just had a little arm injury, that uh, the other people in the car were all fine. Of course, all that turned out to be not true. But there certainly were a lot of rumors going around. We couldn't get any information. We couldn't get close enough to, to see for ourselves. And of course, the police at the scene, this was such a high profile crash that the lid was on. There was nobody going to tell us anything. And, um, and especially at that time of year, in the summertime, the officials uh, were off on vacation too. And so to get permission to release any information was a long drawn out process. So things moved very slowly on the information front, but then we did see the ambulance pull away that was taking Diane to the hospital. We didn't know at that at the time. We didn't know who was in the ambulance, but we knew that it was on its way to the hospital. And some of us followed the ambulance, but I was told by CNN to go to the office and I couldn't figure this out. And I think in many ways, the main theme of the night for me is that there is a dawning sense that although we are in some sense on the scene in Paris, the main action of the story is being transacted somewhere else. There are people elsewhere in the world for a whole variety of reasons, very complex reasons, who know more about the story than you do. So we have one sense of the events evolving in Paris, but a much more accurate sense of the events is starting to evolve in London in a breaking news story, the information is just constantly unfolding. And it's the job of the correspondents and the producers and, and me and my deputies to figure out what is reportable, what is reliable. Where did we get this information? Is it reliable? Is it verifiable? Because we're not going to just put out every rumor and every speculation that we hear. That would be irresponsible. Once the accident occurred, the British ambassador 
in France would notify the private secretary who was at Balmoral, because the Queen was on holiday at Balmoral, and he would keep briefing the private secretary as to the state of play. He would have informed private secretary, and the private secretary in turn would inform the Queen and the Prince of Wales. But the lights were burning in Balmoral all night following that accident. Several of the paparazzi who'd been following the car into the tunnel actually approached the car before the police got there. Some of them took photographs. Some of them tried to help the people in the car. They're thought to have opened the doors of the car. Uh, Several of those people were arrested at the scene a couple, a few days later. Film was impounded by the police. I think the motorbikes too were impounded by the police. So they were not available to be spoken to. And even the ones who remained at liberty... I think, had a very, very acute sense that they were going to be blamed for this, that they would not be seen as innocent parties. So they clammed up pretty quickly because immediately they were the centre of police attention and the centre of global attention. And the idea that Diana had effectively been hounded to her death by this mob of paparazzi very quickly became the the kind of widely accepted account of events. Again, I was very confused about who was in the car. We really couldn't get confirmation of that. And of course, nobody at the scene, the police, was far above their pay grade. They were not about to venture any speculation about who it might be in the car, although we all knew who it was. I think we're just waiting for confirmation of it. The pressure from the network and from the bosses and everybody wanted to know what the latest was. And on the other side, uh, we had the people on the ground who were basically under pressure from their higher ups, who were some of them not even in town. They were off on vacation still. And even higher ups in uh, Great Britain who were calling the shots about how the information should be released. So the information flow was not clear at all. There was nobody on the scene to give us any kind of information at all that uh, was reliable. I mean, there was no sort of press spokesman or anything like that. The hospital at first wasn't, you know, they weren't going to like release information about her, the severity of her injuries. Sometimes the absence of information tells you as much as the presence of information. I just knew in my gut that if she hadn't been really, really badly hurt, there would have been word to that effect. I knew that. We have contacts in Paris, of course. The BBC has been in Paris since the liberation in 1944, so we know people. But it's moments like this that teach you a little humility, I think, as a journalist, because it teaches you that when things are really big, when you're perhaps dealing with a story which is maybe going to turn out to be a first draft of history, as we're always told, then the number of people who really, really know what's going on is very small. So phoning people in Paris, you get the impression that there's a general belief that maybe things are not so bad. And we're talking to London while we're talking to people in Paris. We have a pretty clear sense that things look much more serious to people following events in London. When I look back now, I reflect that it's overwhelmingly likely, it seems to be, that nobody in Paris, not the French government, not the medical authorities, not the police, nobody in Paris wanted to be the person taking responsibility for announcing what was obviously going to be a momentous global news story. So there is a strange 
pregnant period when quite a lot of people in London and quite a lot of other people elsewhere know that the Princess of Wales has died, but that it is not being said in public. Initially, people are told not to say anything because there's a whole issue in British society about how news surrounding the royal family is distributed, is propagated. It's not the job of government. It is the job of the royal household. So nothing has happened in the British royal family until an announcement has come from Buckingham Palace, from the centre of the royal household itself. It was coming out in dribs and drabs. It wasn't clear if, if the news was coming out of London because the British government got involved or if it was coming out of the actual hospital or if it was coming from the French government because she was obviously VIP and I think it was quite a difficult decision for them to make as to who would be in charge of the news and in the end I think it was broken by accident. The Press Association had a, a reporter that was travelling with the late Robin Cook who was then the um, British Foreign Secretary. Robin Cook had been informed by London and he was kept informed about what was going on and he was told that she died and apparently in front of the reporter said oh my goodness she's died the PA reporter just decided to go with that and normally it would be the royal correspondent that would handle that news and um, it would be done out of Buckingham Palace but uh, no he went with that and then the BBC picked it up and that's when I heard it I remember that moment I remember being handed a piece of paper with our sourcing on it. I remember because we had reason to believe that in the next couple of minutes, we would indeed be announcing the death of Princess Diana to all the viewers watching. We had a few minutes notice that we were going to have to read a few words from a piece of paper, and it was up to me to decide exactly how to say it. It was achingly sad in the moment. It remains achingly sad for generations of us to this day. For all the viewers joining us at now 1 a.m. Eastern Time, New York Time in the United States, we have all evening long been covering an unfolding story that took a uh, very, very tragic turn with confirmation from Buckingham Palace tonight that the world has lost uh, Princess Diana at age 36, a dead in a car crash in Paris along with her companion of the past several weeks, Dodi El Fayed. She died at 4 a.m. after going into cardiac arrest. That, according to doctors at the hospital. We will continue our story in a moment. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. 
Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. I'm Brian Williams. Welcome back. Beth O'Connell was producer of special programming for NBC News in the States. I had only been on the job six days. A big part of being a specials producer is anticipating events and planning for events and anticipating, for example, when Ronald Reagan may die or the Pope in terms of big events like a a death like this. But no one would have anticipated a 36-year-old popular icon princess Diana would pass away, but it was just being very, very careful because we were in Saturday Night Live. So we started to have conversations about what do we do? We don't want the audience in any way, shape, or form to have any sense that this could be a parody or a part of the show. We had already interrupted the network several times, but it was clear that we were going to have more information to tell. We were very low on staff in the press office. There were literally three of us. There were two press secretaries and one uh, communications officer. And the uh, press secretary was on duty, called me to say around about quarter past three on the Sunday morning that uh, she'd gone. The official announcement of Diana's death was made by Lord Jay, the British ambassador to France. I was in bed in the embassy and the two phone calls tell me that there had been an accident and get to the hospital quickly. She had been badly hurt. The nurse came in tears and said, I'm afraid she's died. It was just getting light. Two Mercedes drew up and Mohammed Al-Fayed got out of them. And I told him that his son had died. There was a tremendous shock in the hospital at that stage. I had my remit at the time was always um, sort of running ceremonial events. And ceremonial events included funerals. And so within half an hour, I was behind my desk in Buckingham Palace. It's about 10 to 4 in the morning, waiting to hear from the private secretary at Balmoral as to what is next. And when I say what is next, we were slightly up in the air at the time because Dana was divorced, which meant that she was, uh, in terms of, of her death and her funeral, came under the Spencer family. Charles Spencer, Lord Spencer, was in South Africa, and they needed to get hold of him. They needed to brief him as to what happened. He had to decide how the funeral was going to be, whether it was a private family funeral, which meant that he would organise it, or whether it would be left to Buckingham Palace to have what we would call a royal funeral, given Diana's status, Diana's position in the world, Um, everything that she'd achieved. And he decided it was around about half past five, six o'clock on the Sunday morning that because of Dinah and who she was and who she represented and what she had done, it would be right that she should have a royal funeral. And that's when we swung into action. And that's when the decision was taken to send an aircraft to France to pick the body up. And my first role was to organise the media at the RAF Northolt, which is just outside London, where the aircraft would arrive. Immediately, several of my producers went to London and we secured a site directly across from Westminster Abbey. So we produced the funeral from there. Tom Brokaw, of course, came to anchor. We had uh, Katie Couric co-anchor with Tom. 
We had Jane Polly there because she was there for Dateline, so we included Jane. And it created a system where we were sharing production assistance and really creating a 24-hour schedule so that everybody could be supported uh, with the producers and the talent that were there. My bureau went from about a normal number of about, say, 45 people to 150 people in a day. I mean, they were just flying over. So I was in the middle of this bureau trying to figure out all of the logistics of how we were going to get Dan Rather, an anchor location, and then all that it takes to be able to go live from wherever we were going to be going live from for, we figured, at least a week. So the craziness that happens when a big story like that occurs is it's hard to explain because there's just so many moving parts. People knew instinctively what their job was. So if it was the technical side, it was just let me know what you need from me. Otherwise, just make sure you can get this anchor location up, that we're going to have multiple guests at the anchor location. Dan's going to have to be able to be there overnight. We're going to have to have food catering. We're going to have to have, you know, a million different things that people don't know goes on behind the scenes. Interestingly enough, I had walked the route of Queen Elizabeth, Queen Mother's funeral route two weeks beforehand. And it was decided that we would use that plan which was the body would rest at the Chapel Royal St. James's Palace and then to Westminster Abbey for the funeral service and then to Windsor for private interment. And we had that plan. And as I say, I had walked with the broadcasters two weeks beforehand. So they were well prepared in as much that they knew what was happening. On the Monday, I called the broadcasters in in the evening after our first meeting that morning with the household to explain that, yes, what we had walked the route two weeks ago, the Queen Mother's funeral, those are the arrangements that we will be putting into place. Go away, set up your cameras and get on with it. But in two days, the police decided and were concerned about the volume of people that would be coming into London the police said, no, the route was too short, can we extend it? Because they're going to be in excess of a million, two million people converging on London. So we suggested extending the route right up the top of the Mall, round Trafalgar Square, top of Whitehall, all the way to Westminster Abbey. They came back the following day, 24 hours later, and said, no, it was still too short. And the princess's private secretary suggested, why don't we take the princess back to Kensington Palace and start the procession from there? Now, that presented a problem in terms of the media, because within two days of telling them the route, we had doubled it. And I called them in on the Wednesday night and said, the route I gave you on Monday is fixed. This bad news is that we've doubled it. We're starting from Kensington Palace. And they really had a problem because it meant that they didn't have enough personnel. They didn't have enough cameras and equipment. And they actually had to pool their resources And they had two days in which to not only set up, but also go into private residences to set up cameras. And we had house owners and flat owners calling me saying, is this legitimate? Are they allowed to do that? Said, well, it's entirely up to you if you're prepared to have them. And it worked. So from a short route, we had doubled it in two days to a long route. And I think it was about 2.2, two and a half miles. Plus the fact I had suggested that we put a big television screen 
on Hyde Park, on what we call the parade ground, which is vast expanse of grass. And there were in excess of 100,000 people on, on that watching on television. So we pretty much accommodated everybody. Different people arrived from New York representing their broadcast. So the evening news people would be worrying about their evening news content. The morning news people would be worrying about theirs. We certainly did a lot of special programming where we were on the air for hours and hours and hours. And then we would also do shows. When we talk about what was the hardest, I think it's always in the beginning when you're trying to get everything organized. Because once it all gets into a routine, and I use that word loosely, like nothing's a routine in a big breaking news story, but at least... People are in their lanes and they're worrying about what they have to worry about so that the next up on the air is happening. It looks frenetic, but the fact of the matter is when everybody understands their job really well, it all comes together. We had meetings every day, every morning at 10 o'clock, which was led by the Lord Chamberlain. He's the most senior person in the royal household. And uh, the royal household is very used to ceremonial events and nothing really phases them. We had three representatives from Downing Street. Tony Blair had been elected three months beforehand. They were new kids on the block, um, and they thought they knew it all. There's always this perception that Buckingham Palace is being run by either military or by university or old duffers from clubs. Well, it's not. It's being run by professional people. And they soon got to learn one of the Downing Street, that's the Prime Minister's office, people said, when the uh, controller, who's the sort of lead player in organising state events, said, well, we have two options here. We either transport Princess in a hearse or on a gun carriage. And right away, Downing Street said, oh, you can't use a gun carriage. That's too militaristic. That doesn't go down well. And the uh, controller explained, he said, well, uh, you know, if you put the casket in a hearse and you reach out, you can't touch it metaphorically touch it because it's enclosed. But if it's on a gun carriage and it's open, you can. Besides, the princess was colonel of a number of military regiments. So she's fully entitled to have a gun carriage. And these people sat back and thought, hmm, these guys at Buckingham Palace know exactly what they're talking about. Um, and their only contribution after that was that money was no object because these things cost money. It cost a lot of money to organize. And as far as the government were concerned, uh, no expense was spared. It's been a long and emotional week. It reached proportions that no one could have anticipated, of course. We'll be talking about that all day long here. As we have the most evocative moment for me and most people were when the boys started walking behind the casket. And that was just, uh, you know, just so, so moving. The cortege is now reaching the west side of Buckingham Palace and will shortly pass the Queen and the royal family. A bow from the Queen as the coffin passed the west side of Buckingham Palace. When the gun carriage went past Buckingham Palace and the Queen very decisively bowed as it went past, and this is not something that she does. She only bows at the Cenotaph on Remembrance Day, but she bowed. And when the gun carriage had gone past Buckingham Palace and gone round the Queen Victoria Memorial up the Mall, there were no birds. It was silence, all except a 
piper, somebody playing the bagpipes in the crowd, playing Flowers of the Forest. Flowers of the Forest is a Scottish funeral march. And that's all, all you could hear. And plus the fact people sobbing and weeping. As a journalist, I mean, I think you feel the moment. And for me, as, as an executive producer, as, as a producer, you just want to impart that because it's part of that humanity is just allowing people to feel the feeling of the moment as well as just the, the literal pictures, I think, is, uh, is very, very important. This is Earl Spencer. I stand before you today, the representative of a family in grief, in a country in mourning, before a world in shock. The three broadcasters set up cameras in Westminster Abbey. It's the last time the three broadcasters were allowed to do that because it was too much, too much lighting, too many camera positions. And subsequently, one of the lessons we learned from that was that in future, any major state event, there would be one camera crew, one network that would pool their resources. For example, when Harry and Meghan got married, there was one broadcaster and that was the BBC and everybody took the BBC output. It's called an international clean feed. But with Diana's funeral, the three broadcasters were inside Westminster Abbey and they provided coverage to their affiliates. Meanwhile, there was a very large foreign press association camp and they set up individual studios on what we call Canada Gate, where their reporters were able to do stand-ups. I was actually very proud of the way we covered Princess Diana's death. I thought it was uh, respectful. I thought it was complete. I was exhausted by it. But I remember the very last night, the very last special that we did, we did a special that aired two o'clock in the morning, my time. So it would have been about nine o'clock in the evening, New York time. And when we got off the air, I remember just all of a sudden I started to cry. And people were saying, what's the matter? What's the matter? And I think it was all of this pent up, everything I had kept inside. I was so nervous and so scared the whole two weeks we were covering this story because it was so huge. This was the hugest story that had happened in my career at CBS News. And I thought there's never gonna be a bigger story than this. This was huge. I mean, a 36 year old beloved princess is dead and it's hard to get your head around. And I think that I was proud of our coverage. We did a beautiful, beautiful job in all of our specials, in all of the shows production. And I was just very proud of the people in London. I mean, we just had, you know, like I told you, probably 150 or more people making this happen. So it was an extraordinary effort, an extraordinary team effort, an extraordinary example of how good those people were at their jobs. One of the things that I guess was surprising was how long the story went on. I you know, literally was in the office every day for 30 days after working that initial 36 hours straight. I was in the office every day for 30 days cranking out stories, and the interest just did not go away. But that coverage also fueled suspicion that the standards by which broadcast journalists had held themselves to account were being compromised by various alliances with questionable sources in the race to deliver fresh news. 
The whole episode was ghoulish, particularly the leaked photos of Diana still in the wreckage. Three days after Diana's death, George Clooney called a press conference to sound that very warning. This is not about me. But as I sit in front of my TV listening to tabloid journalists dodging their own responsibility and placing the blame on a drunken driver or Princess Di, I now feel that the only fair thing that I can do is stand up and make one statement. Ask this to the self-appointed spokesman Stephen Koz, the editor of the National Enquirer. Princess Di is dead. And who should we see about that? The driver of the car, the paparazzis, or the magazines and papers who purchase these pictures and make bounty hunters out of photographers. Legitimate news sources like the LA Times and Network News should draw a clear line in the sand. Do not use tabloids as a source. You define the difference. Do your job, inform responsibly. And as for you, Mr. Kaz, and your colleagues, I wonder how you sleep at night. You should be ashamed. The lust for photos of a beautiful 36-year-old woman further cemented the fame and intrigue around her. The lust for photos, a wild chase after Diana and her boyfriend, led to her death after only 36 years with us here on Earth. I think the media covered it admirably. They covered it from Westminster Abbey all the way up to Althorpe, which is in Northamptonshire which again is all credit to them for doing so. The broadcasters did Diana proud. I'm Brian Williams. For more information about this episode and our series, please visit our website, weinterruptthisbroadcast.org. Now please listen to this special message from Bill Curtis about the great work of the Broadcasters Foundation of America. Every day, broadcasters bring us the information and entertainment that enriches our lives and often saves lives. It's not only the person on air. It's the producers, engineers, management, sales, marketers, camera operators, and more. For more than 70 years, the Broadcasters Foundation of America, a 501c3 charity, has been a safety net providing financial assistance to broadcasters and their families in acute need from a debilitating illness, tragic accident, or unthinkable catastrophe. Whether a retired broadcaster who can't afford life-saving medications, a family struggling to make ends meet after a crippling accident or severe damage from a hurricane to the home of a broadcaster in need, the Broadcasters Foundation has always been there to help those in our industry who need it most. Now more than ever, the Broadcasters Foundation is in need of your donations to continue its charitable mission. Please consider a donation today at broadcastersfoundation.org. That's broadcastersfoundation.org. On behalf of all our broadcasters in all areas of our industry, we thank you.